forever. And we will adore him. Those who had no right to be in eternal life in the kingdom of heaven with God, the faithful ones who have come and believed, have been gifted a free gift through the blood of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins forever. That's why we praise him. That's why we adore him because there's reason to. But I know this, being a fellow brother with my brothers and sisters who are still in the flesh, it gets hard to praise his name because we forget that. We tend to feel something all the time that God has dealt with completely, and it's guilt and shame, right? Reflect on something about me is not right yet, ergo, I can't praise my Savior because I'm, I'm just flooded with the accusations of the enemy of how much I'm still missing it. Hebrews tells us that the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from a guilty conscience. And that's why we adore him. And that's why we praise him forever because you and I could take time to talk about all of our junk that still remains. He has still saved us. He has still forgiven us. And we will be with him forever in heaven. And we have to remind each other this all the time because we forget it so easily. So we're going to pray. We're going to bow our knees and we're going to pray. And as we do, I do want to let you know of something specific we're going to intercede for. Todd was supposed to be up here uh, teaching today, but he is in Pennsylvania. We've prayed for his mom who was diagnosed with throat cancer. And the news has come this past week that it has come back. There's nothing they can do. And they've already called hospice in. So Todd has had to go to Pennsylvania to be with his family and await uh, a hard time. And so we want to pray and intercede for our our brother, our pastor, and ask God to be with his family um, during this time as we pray and get our hearts ready for the Lord. So let's, let's bow together and let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you dwell in the secret place that's in our hearts and our mind where no one else can hear. Or we might feel hidden. God, you're there. You see and you hear everything. It's a fearful thing, but it's also a good thing because you know our hearts. I pray that you would help us this morning to put aside every weight, every thought, every stress and anxiety that would be weighing on us right now. Life is full of these tribulations. And you'd help us to focus on the one who overcame the world who has given us every reason to rejoice at all moments, Jesus. But we need you even to help us in our weakness with that. And God, I pray that you would be with Todd, be with Wendy, be with his mom and his dad, be with his brothers. God, you know when you're ready to take all of us home. And you know when you're ready to take his mom home. I pray that you would give her relief, comfort, that when that time comes, it would not be painful and that, God, you would uh, give her great peace and, God, you would surround this family with the peace that passes understanding and the comfort that only you can give. And, God, my heart heart turns to my brothers and sisters here who have also been impacted by cancer, whether it's a family member or whether it's those who are here who have it already and are dealing with something in their body that could potentially um, take their life. God, I pray that you would let them feel the comfort right now as well. I pray for them that you would heal them. You take care of them and you would help the enemy not to use 
the fear of death or the fear of these things that happen in our body as a weapon that would discourage them from faith in you and joy in you. God, we are all going to face the end of our fleshly physical life. That's the wages of sin. Thank you that you've given us a hope and a reason to face that day with joy and confidence. But God, we need you to fill us with that confidence and that joy. So be with us now as we open your word. Make us a church that's unified. And God, be patient with us. Surround us with mercy. We always need it. And open our hearts and minds to the things you have for us in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And kids, you are free to sprint out of here. We love you guys. Hope you have a wonderful time. Summit Kids. And the rest of my brothers and sisters, we're going to take our Bible. And we're going to turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Today's going to be a little different. You're going to see um, just the passage on the screen. And we are going to walk through the passage that we have today together word by word. I mean, we do that every week. But you're not going to see a a flashy outline today. We're going to learn this passage together. But I do have a title for you. And as we're talking about being a calibrated church, a church that works not for salvation, but because of salvation, if there's one thing I hope you remember, it's that, a church that works not for it. We cannot gain it by any work. But he has done the work and he has saved us by his grace. And now we work. Everything that we do is because of what he's already given us. So it flows from a heart that is, that is not burdened by some type of obligation, but it comes from a heart that is joyful and overwhelmingly excited and responding in love for what God has already done for you. That's a different type of work. So we're a church that works not for, but because Today, the big question is this. The big question I'm going to ask us is this. Devoted or divisive or divisive, however you say that. Are you, as a believer and a church member, a part of the eternal holy body of Christ? When you look at your own heart, would you say, I feel more convicted that I'm on the path to being a devoted Christian or a divisive one? Now, that's a, that's a, that's a heavy question. It's like, well, great Christmas question, Jasper. Come on, it's Christmas time. Why would you ask something so heavy like that? And why would you ask something that's so impossible to answer, right? Because it's kind of like a trick question. It's like, well, if I'm a devoted Christian, then I must be humble. And then to say I'm devoted feels weird. So I'm I'm just going to go ahead and say that I'm probably on the path of division because I'm so worried about that. Well, what's ironic is those who are devoted are probably, probably on their path of humility. So they're more worried about being divisive. And those who are on the path to being a a divisive person probably doesn't see themselves as divisive. Paul is going to start to end his letter to uh, the churches on Crete, the island of Crete through Titus, and he's going to reiterate what is very important, the work that is very important for Titus to do, and this work is, is involving being devoted to good works and helping those who are not and who are divisive, bringing 
uh, false doctrine and teaching wrong things that they must be rebuked in hopes that they would turn and join the church in this, this carefully good work devoted calibrated church or else they must be silenced or they must be ignored and rejected. Ooh, none of us wants to be that person. So Titus chapter three, let me read the passage. You'll see it on the screen and it'll be here and we'll get to refer to it throughout the morning. Let me read it. Titus chapter three, starting in verse eight. Paul says this, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You're probably thinking what I feel and I'm thinking like, God, can't we go back to the last two weeks where it was all about your grace and salvation? Can't we, can't we like sit in that for a while? But there's no reason we can't still sit in that good news. Matter of fact, let me do it. Last two weeks, what did we talk about? You see this climax, this pinnacle of the letter of Titus. Let me come this way. So we start at the beginning, right? All of this instructions that Paul's giving to Titus Appoint elders, godly qualified elders who are examples, right? It starts with them. Now it goes to the older men. They need to be examples and teach the younger, then the older women to the younger, then to the younger men and the younger women, and then to uh, servants, bond servants and slaves, and to everyone to be a calibrated church. We're like, why, why, why? Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So you see this, like, this pinnacle of the book is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The grace of God is why all of this calibration needs to happen. And then last week he turns and he gives a, 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 some more uh, instruction about reminding them to be submissive to authorities, to, not, to honor everyone, to not speak evil of anyone. Right? He turns their minds to people outside the church and he reminds him, like, listen, it's not only because of what God's done for us, but it's because of what he's left us here to do, the impact that he wants us to make in the world, that's worthy of being calibrated for because there are people who are still stuck in darkness. And he says, remember, you too were once foolish, slaves to various passions, passing your days in malice and envy, hating one another and being hated by one another. That's the experience of living in darkness on planet earth and everyone born begins there until the light shines in their heart and the morning star rises and God brings them to the knowledge of the truth and they're saved and God begins to change their life. There are still those who need to hear the gospel 
It's left up to us to take this message. We don't just take it with our mouth, though. We take it with our life. And the world needs to see a calibrated life. They need to see the light as much as they need to hear about the light. This is the whole point. So he climaxes and pinnacles with this calibration, grace, reason, reminds them of how uh, the, the God of all grace came and he saved us at the proper time and he wants to save others at the proper time and appear in their life and he'll do it through you. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. So when we're talking about works, we need to get out of our head away from legalism and, and laws that we have to do and start thinking about works as a church and being changed as a beautiful response to the grace of God and a, a beautiful tool and necessity for other people being saved. We get that? So then we come to verse eight here and look what Paul says. We're going to begin our journey now and we're going to talk about two types of people the believer who's devoted to good works and then the person who's not and causes division and hurts this calibrated effort and in turns hurts and keeps the gospel from going out. It hinders the work of God. It is a very uh, important thing to look out for and it's prevalent in churches throughout all time. We have to constantly keep lookout for it. So let's take this journey together to look at these two types of people. Verse eight, he starts here and he says this, The saying is trustworthy, comma. What saying? Well, everything that he has said before this, primarily since he started talking about the grace of God, all the way up to this point, as he's talking about these things you do for this because God's done this for this, all these things that I've told you to remember, these things are trustworthy. Paul Paul says this a lot. If you read 1 and 2 Timothy, you will hear this phrase, this this saying is, is trustworthy. It's faithful. It's dependable. You can count on it. It's true. He's getting the attention like devote, hear, listen, know that you can be sure that this is true. So all this good news about the grace of God and God saving you and appearing to you and his mercy and the things that he's told you, told you to be devoted to, these things are trustworthy. Comma. So it refers back to what he just talked about. And then look what he says to me to your pastors, as he talks to Titus, this pastor who's been charged with appointing elders in the church. He says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you, Titus, you, pastor, to do what? To insist on these things. That word insist is, it carries with this idea of a constantly urging, pleading, almost like begging Right? Like what, man, you don't insist on things that aren't important. Exactly. It's because these things are important. And you need to insist on things that are easily forgotten and easily neglected. Can we all admit, since we're still in the flesh, that like the things that he's talked about, the type of calibrated person that basically lives for everyone else, denies themselves, and is submissive in really hard moments of life to authorities that aren't worthy of being submissive to, to husbands that aren't worthy of being submissive to. Like, I need no help in forgetting to do those things. Like, I'm really good at that. Leave me alone and I will will surely not run to those things. Exactly. The flesh is weak. Spirit willing, flesh is weak. Therefore, pastor, you have 
to insist on these things. Keep reminding. Remember what he said in chapter two, verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. And then he says this, let no one disregard you. And as a pastor, you know when someone's trying to disregard you because they come up to you, they, they bring up what you said and they try to show you why you were wrong with what you said from the word. No, no, these things are good and trustworthy and true. And these are the things that the church of God, if it is to be sanctified and calibrated, we must insist on. And your pastors must insist on. Paul told Timothy that there will come a day when people will have itching ears and they will heap for themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. We want to hear the word of God. And there's enough temptation and enough voices that will tell us what we want to hear. We have a plethora of, I can just search it up and find it. And someone will say something that will, will get me going, get my gears going and will agree with me. I love you all. Speaking to myself as well. We must insist on these things. What are these things? Everything that he said in the book. Three chapters is all it is. Now look at the progression. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things, comma, so that he's implying that if you do, something will happen and it's the goal. So that, look, those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is the theme of the book. This is the goal that Paul's trying to get at. Those who have believed in God being devoted to good works. Chapter two reminded us that God wants people who are zealously devoted to good works. This is the goal. But how do you get there? It's these trustworthy sayings that pastors are insisting on, and those who have believed in God are carefully devoting themselves to these things. Notice this where he says that those who have believed in God, it's not just talking about people who believe in God in general, it's talking about those who are saved, those who, who have come to the faith of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and they believe in the one true God. Those who are members of the church, who are Christians, insist on these things so that those people God's sheep, his body, would be carefully devoted to good works. Carefully and zealous, when we're thinking about good works as, as the body of Christ, those are kind of the, 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 the qualifying words that need to go around good works. Zealous, which means I'm ready for it, I'm eager, I'm energetic. Romans tells us not to be slothful in zeal, and we have to be reminded of that because that's our propensity. But then also this, careful. That comes with this idea. Here's what it means, thinking. Okay, you had me at careful, but when you, when you bring in this explanation of thinking, it's like God wants us to take time to think, to let it pierce into our mind and think about what it would mean to be devoted to good works and what these good works are and what they aren't and to spend time meditating and put the effort inside of our mind of how can I honor God with this desire that he has for me in my life. To one, glorify him, but also I know you'll use me to help bring the world to salvation. Carefully and then devoted is the idea of eager. It's a priority. 
eager priority. Do you see why we have to have these things insisted on? All of us can agree together that we're not going to naturally stumble on to this type of Christ-like living that is purely self-denying and others-focused because it's ultimately God-focused and wants his will to come and his will to be done in our life. Every day we wake up, our flesh is fighting against that, and the enemy is doing everything he can to put words that aren't the words of God but sound like the words of God. He, 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 he disguises himself as an angel of light and comes and tries to use thinking that will tell us otherwise. Crafty, sneaky, more tricky than any other beast of the field, we're up against it. That's why we need sound doctrine. Now look what he says about this. He says, these things are excellent. If there's anything that's worth like exalting and saying is good and excellent and worthy in life, it's these things. But notice what else he says about these things. They are what? What's that word that starts with a P? I want everybody to say it. It starts with a P, everyone say it, go. Profitable. Now, if you just say that word to us as people, we like that word because we like profit, right? We like to, we like to get, we like the, the return in the investment to be positive, not negative, right? We understand that. This is a very easy concept. He's saying these things, if you're carefully and zealously devoted to, to f- your life being calibrated, sanctified to the image of Christ, in these areas that I know are hard, then you can be sure that you're doing what's excellent and you are doing something that will absolutely 100% have a positive return in your investment. It will be profitable. And look who it's profitable to. Who's it profitable to? Profitable for people. Everyone benefits from this. Not just you. Everyone around you. Now, really quick, I want you to notice he's going to bring up this word unprofitable again. Look where it shows up. He says here, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are what? Unprofitable. And are they excellent? Worthless, which means you will waste your energy and time and you'll have nothing to show for it. If anything, actually what you will have to show for it is division. Let's not get too ahead of ourselves. I want you to see the contrast. You see how Paul is trying to contrast. I've told you why to be devoted. I'm really trying to set it up so you know very clearly what I'm trying to communicate to you, why this is so important, why it's worthy to be a church that works, that lets God mold us and make us who he wants to be because there's something that's excellent and profitable in that and profitable for all people. Now, I want to add something. It's really hard to live on earth, to see what's going on, to want to make change, and we want something tangible, something that we can see and do in the moment, right? We all get that. That's how life is. We want that tangible thing, whether it's with our kids, with our family members, or with just people in the world trying to make change in the world. How is change going to happen? How is the world going to change? This is what it's getting at. Not through trying to change the culture, not through trying to get the world to live like Christians. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we have no business judging outsiders, but we do have business judging one another in the church in a loving way that keeps us on the right path. 
But no business judging outsiders. We don't expect those who are lost in darkness to conform to the image of Christ when we know that we were unable to do that when we were lost in darkness. The world is going to be the world and there is nothing we can do about it. But if all of our energy and our effort goes in just trying to to manipulate change, it's, it's, it's going to be no different than trying to save someone through the law. It's not gonna do anything but provoke people and it's gonna cause our light to be shielded. God doesn't say, I want you to go and force other people to be people. I want you to be me for everyone else like I was for you. Your life changing from one image into another. God investing in your life and changing you into Jesus. So you as a person, man, woman, child, teenager, whoever you are, being changed into looking like, thinking like, sounding like, your savior is of utmost importance. Paul says to the Colossians church to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, redeeming the time. Make best of your time toward outsiders. You need to be the people that they cannot be because you have the person they do not have in them. You have the savior and God of the world inside of you and he's changing you. So people see it and they feel hope and they know there's something different about you and they wanna be a part of it. And then when God gives you opportunity, you speak. Like Peter says, and you give a reason for the hope that is in you. People will only ask you about the hope that's in you if they could see it. And Peter is talking of the opportunity of showing people hope when life isn't going the way you want it to go and they're suffering and yet you're suffering well and you're honoring all people and you're trusting God and you're loving people and you're not chasing after money and you're not chasing after trivial things and your life is an example of Jesus who flourished during hardship. So the harder life gets, the harder life gets, the better opportunity we have for people to see Jesus. Let's not miss it. So, this is the devoted, carefully, zealous, devoted person. What about the divisive person? So, in this journey of a church being calibrated, there will always be wolves. There will be people who will be leaven, who will mess this up, who will, who will snuff out the light, who will, who will try to wipe away many with them into their selfish motives. And Paul said there were many on the island of Crete. We're warned also by Paul that in the last days and as time goes on, this will only get worse and worse and worse. It is something that we as leaders must look out for and we must not be afraid to speak into these things, but we need to understand it, all right? So let's look at the second type of person. He says here, but avoid The word means turn away from. So when you see these things, they come into your life, they're pressing against you, they kind of enter your sphere, your bubble, you have an opportunity to engage or not. The word here is to not, to avoid, walk away from. Don't let yourself get pulled into the hurricane or the vortex, I would say, or the vacuum of these things. So what are these things? But avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. They are unprofitable and worthless. Let's talk about these. Avoid foolish controversies. 
disputings. Uh, the word here is foolish, which is where we get the word moron. And it's not talking about all things that would be debatable because the word controversy has the idea of debating. Debating's not wrong, but engaging and wasting your time in foolish debating is wrong. Well, what would you mean? What, what type of controversies would be foolish? It would be any conversation that does nothing to profit the person listening or yourself where you walk away and you leave and you're just frustrated, mad, judging. Nothing good has happened as a result of that debate or that discussion. You haven't understood the scriptures better. You haven't drawn closer to Christ better. All it does is it causes more and more irritation, resentment, and bitterness towards people. Avoid these things. I don't think I need to go through and give example after example after example of what these things are. I think we know them when they're happening. Now, in the church, there are many things we might discuss concerning this that calls debating, and especially when it's of utmost importance, there should be, and it is okay for there to be, good conversation and debating about trying to understand this better, the type where iron sharp as iron, right? It's like, okay, you disagree, I disagree, but we, un- we love each other, we're here, we're trying to give each other information the other may be lacking, and I come away from that, and I'm like, you know what? I saw something and heard something I've never thought of. And he showed me from scripture where that was, and that makes sense, right? Iron sharpening iron. Peter even said, be, re- be ready to give a, a reason for the hope that is in you. That's, a, that's engaging in conversation, things that may be controversial to people out in the world, but it's of utmost importance, so we engage, but the heart's right. Here he's talking about moronic, foolish discussions that will do nothing but hurt people. Let me give you some, uh, some examples of how dangerous this type of stuff is among the body of Christ. In Acts chapter 15, 24, Paul says, since we have heard, Luke is writing, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds. Discussions, words, where believers have engaged in and now their minds have been unsettled. Their faith has been shaken. He says, although we gave you no instructions, right? You got people who aren't apostles who are trying to tell people the way of life and it's unsettled their minds. How about this? Paul tells Timothy about two people who rejected this and what he rejected was the the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. Maybe they started out and they believed the gospel um, in a pure way, but they've given ear to foolish debatings and foolish words from false teachers. They've accepted it and it's made a shipwreck of their faith, and he says this, among whom, and he names them, Hermonius and Alexander, and he says, whom I've handed over to Satan that they may not learn to blaspheme. The result of the uh, controversial engagement shipwrecked their faith, and it led them to actually blaspheme, either with their life or with their mouth. And Paul has learned, like, man, they're not listening. The only thing to do is just to hand them over and let them experience the error of their ways. Paul also says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but ruins the hearer. 
Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Right, so he's, you have this picture, especially in the New Testament, of just debates and conversations that aren't worth even engaging in. And the biblical Holy Spirit inspired exhortation to God's church is avoid these things. He continues on, he says, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hermias and Philetus, Philetus, who have swerved from the truth And then he gives an example of some of their conversations, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Please do not engage in flat earth conversations. Please do not engage in speculations that will do nothing to help people get closer to Jesus. Do not be pulled into it, and don't be that person that pulls other people into it. Of an example. But avoid foolish controversies. Then he says this, genealogies. We may not struggle with this, but the Jewish audience that was always wolves around these people would, were obsessed with genealogies, whether it was exalting themselves of what tribe they were from or actually bringing in uh, accusations and speculations about genealogies that would have attacked the good genealogies that are in scriptures that lead us to Jesus. And there was known in the world of that time when all the apostles had died, there was a great influx of of erroneous speculations of genealogies that were attacking the genealogies of scripture. Avoid these things. Don't take part in them. Someone comes to you and be like, hey, well, did you know that actually this person in Luke isn't this? And so you actually can't trace it back to Jesus. You know what you do? You don't engage. You turn around, you walk right away from that person. Don't engage in that. Don't do it. It's not going to help you. You're going to walk away. You're going to have doubts cast in your mind, just like Satan did to Eve when she was at the tree. Doubt's going to be cast, not based off any evidence, just based off someone coming to you in your ears now have a choice. You're going to listen to that. You're going to give it a ear. You're going to let it settle in. And if you have let any of this settle in, you know exactly what it feels like. You're rocked to the core. You don't know what to believe anymore. There's, it's like you're locked in a room and you can't get out. And it's like every time you hear someone speaking scripture, it's like you can't just accept it in faith because you, you hear, you've heard so many voices on the outside who would have something that sounds slightly intelligent to dispute it on. Garbage, avoid it. Remember, I am to insist on these things. Exhort and declare to protect us. Remember what chapter one of Titus talked about. These false teachers who come in, they have to be rebuked. They must be silenced for they upsetting the households of many. Many households are being upset by people like this. Genealogies. Then he says this, dissensions. That word dissension has the idea of factions. Let me read you some more scripture. Bear with me. I'm going back and forth to Timothy because I want you to see how important this is. First Timothy 1.3, Paul says this to Timothy, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves 
to myths, same words for being devoted to good works. Instead, don't devote yourself to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul says this in 1 Timothy, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up and conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means to gain. They're not even sincere in what they're trying to convince you of. They just want either your attention or your money. Or some people just love controversy. Well, that's just who I am. I just, I love to drop a bomb, shake things up, and watch what happens. It's just entertaining for me. Love to play devil's advocate. That's a problem. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So when I ask the question, are we devoted or divisive? We should definitely not want to be divisive because the the, uh, the colorization of that is you're being captured by the devil to do his will. But it's always motivated by some type of good intention in your mind or martyrdom in your mind or I'm helping the church. Or it's just someone who wants personal gain. They don't even, they're not even sincere about what they're doing. When it says here, Paul says, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions. Dissensions are a factious person, a quarrelsome person. This is a person who cares nothing about authorities above them. I don't care what God says. I don't care what his words say. I'm gonna stick to my conviction and my opinion, and I only care about making sure others hear my opinion. And it may be fueled by from some sense that God's on their side, but if you pay attention, they won't listen to any authority in their life. That's why one of the qualifications of being calibrated is to submit, right? Because that's a fruit. If someone's willing to submit to unworthy governments, they're willing to submit to their pastors, they willingly put them in a place of submission, you automatically know that person's a humble person. They're probably wise. They probably listen. They're probably not the type of person that's just gonna wanna share their opinion only, Avoid these types of people. The Bible describes it as a self-willed person. Everything they do is motivated by what they want to do. I'm self-willed. God's not pushing me on it. It's me, and I'm going to get what I want. It may not come out that obvious, but it'll come out time and time and time and time and time again. A reputation will be known in your mind about this person, or you will become this type of person in other people's mind and they only want what they want. They'll keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Again, this is the foolish type of stuff, stuff that's not of scripture, not of the things that we should be concerned with. And he says, avoid quarrels about the law. Just read the book of Galatians and you'll hear what was happening to the churches where the Judaizers were coming in, using the law of God to convince people that they needed to be circumcised. In the book of Acts, the church got together and determined that that's not a requirement for the church. No, 
but they had to deal with it all the time. People coming and saying, you must do this in order for God to love you, or you must do this, you must do this. This is the case, or implying if you don't do this, then not. Believe in Jesus Christ, that he is your Lord and your Savior, and you will be saved. He's risen from the dead. Outside of that, nothing else is added to it. No one can add anything else. And if anyone else in your ear has added to it or made it feel like God doesn't love you or heaven's far away because you're not this, 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 either one, you're misunderstanding that person and their help trying to calibrate you or you've given ear to stuff that's not worth listening to. Then verse 10 comes. Bear with me, church. I know this is hard but we know this is good. The devoted person, he goes in verse 10 to make a general blanket like statement to all of us as a warning. As for a person who stirs up division, as for a person who stirs up division, here's what you do. After warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful he is self-condemned. Now we're talking about false teaching. We're talking about the type of people he mentioned in verse chapter one who were unable to be, who were unable to be rebuked and exhorted into changing and repenting. Chapter one, Paul says, you rebuke someone sharply that they may be sound in the faith. The goal is always restoration. The goal is never to be mean. And what Paul said to Timothy, I read it earlier, correcting opponents with gentleness. As we approach someone like this, as harsh as it sounds, it's, it's got to come from a place of love and motivation where I see that someone's on the wrong track and they're stirring up division. They're causing quarrels. They're giving into controversies. They're bringing this stuff among the people. It's like a gangrene. It's leaven that's starting to spread. Bitterness is coming up. The fruits of the flesh are coming up in the people, not the fruits of the spirit. So if I trace back the poison, who does it come to? Oh, this person. Hey, turn and repent. You are not on the path of life. You are on the path of a self-willed destruction. You do not have knowledge of the truth. This is God's church. Jesus saved you. He wants to save you and repent and turn. And that person hears it and they're like, oh my goodness, you're right. And they turn and they join you. Then amen. But you rebuke, you bring the rebuke and there's nothing but a hard stanced, I'm not moving, I'm right. Ain't nobody tell me nothing mentality. You warn them twice. After that, have nothing to do with them because the unity of the church is so important. It is so important and foundational to God's people becoming the people he wants and for the world to get saved. That when someone is divisive and they will not respond to correction or exhortation, they are completely ruining that. And if there's anything worth disciplining someone over or, or rejecting them, as the scripture says, having nothing to do with them, it's over stuff like this. But after once, then twice, trying with all love, the last course of action that you must do is have nothing to do with them. Now, this is not, be careful as you get zealous for this passage, you go on a witch hunt and you end up applying this to, to, to people in the church you just need to bear with. Do you hear me? This isn't a weapon that you take out to people that you're, you're struggling to get along with. This is what the pastor must do for the person who's bringing false doctrine and causing division and they won't respond to the confrontation. 
outside of that, as brothers and sisters, we got plenty of stuff that we make each other frustrated about. Plenty of things that the other person is doing or not doing that we think we should. Expectations from each other. All types of stuff that we bring from the flesh that are, that are hard to be around, we can show that we can be uni- unified despite that. We can show the world that we can love and forbear one another despite those differences. That's the type of stuff the world wants to see, but we cannot put up with this. And finally, in conclusion, he describes, knowing this, you know when you have a person like this, you can be confident and you should know in your head that the reason this person's acting this way is because they're warped and sinful, twisted, inside out, like a piece of metal that's been heated, and then when it's, when it's dried or it's quenched, it comes out and it's like bent. You can't Every effort to try to flatten it back into place and you let go, it's still bent. They're warped because of their constant sinfulness. And then it says this, this person, he is self-condemned, which means they've had chance to respond. Now they're participating in their own condemnation. They haven't heeded the warning. And now they're participating in their own condemnation from the church to be released and handed over Satan to just go do your thing and go taste and see that your way isn't good. And hopefully you'll taste and see then, like, wow, they were trying to tell me something that came to my senses. Merry Christmas. We, we do need to wrap this up, and we're going to conclude Titus next week. It's going to be a conclusion, and we are ramping up to Christmas, but here's what I want us to take away today. God wants to use us mightily, and let's not be an instrument for the devil in any way. And, and let's heed the gospel, keep it forefront, keep one another in the forefront and, and spend time praying and seeking the face of God that God make me this devoted person that you want me to be carefully devoted and God help us to deal rightly, both gently and rightly with those who would bring division. We want them to come to repentance and be part of it. But God, if it will not, God remove these people. Let's pray. Father, you've told me to insist on these things, to declare it, to exhort. I've tried my best to honor you in that. I pray that you would now, even through song, as a heaviness is over us, as we think about things that aren't fun per se, but necessary, you would also keep the enemy away and invigorate our hearts that despite these things we have to keep track of, your grace has appeared, bringing salvation And we can rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Work in our hearts now and make us the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.